On Friday, CBS Morning News gave a preview of this evening's edition of 60 Minutes. It's a sobering portrayal of an Alabama memorial with thousands of names of people who were victims of lynching. Documented and accounted for decades following the Civil War. Thousands that they know of, and how many more thousands that they don't. Brian Stevenson, founder and executive director of the Equal Justice Initiative, takes guest reporter Oprah Winfrey through the memorial. Every name has a story, he says. And then he paused and told the story of a minister, the Reverend T.A. Allen, who focused his attention on the rights of sharecroppers. Stevenson said, because he did this, landowners got together and lynched him. Their justification that he was someone deserving of death were two pieces of paper found in his pockets. One had words about sharecropper rights, and the other read, every man a king. Stevenson added, a lot of these folks were lynched because they showed too much dignity. This man wanted to be respected as a human being, and he got hanged for it. Paul's opening words in this letter, which is sent to churches of Asia Minor in the vicinity of Ephesus, not Ephesus proper, because he tells us in the letter he doesn't know them, and he acts like he doesn't know them, and yet he spent three years in Ephesus and made a special trip to greet the leaders of the church there at one point. So clearly this isn't Ephesians proper, it's the churches in the vicinity, possibly Laodicea, Heropolis, and Colossae. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he mentions a letter to the Laodiceans that would come their way. So clearly this might have been a circular letter sent in that way, and we just know it as Ephesians. To me, his words are similar to the story of Reverend T.A. Allen. Words important to him because a messenger, because a message he shared with others was to encourage their identity and determine what they live for, just as T.A. Allen did that for sharecroppers. Words that define what it means to be a follower of Jesus, which threatens the status quo of all your surroundings, as it did in Paul's day. Now, typical of Paul's letters is an opening greeting followed by a prayer, which signals the themes or the intent of Paul's reason for writing. That prayer is present in this book, but it comes later. It's, in fact, the next passage that will be read. But first, he offers a more formal, stylized prayer, which sounds like a song. A song of thanks and praise to God. A prayer which might have originated in worship. One commentator, one commentator describes it this way. This is one long sentence It's in its original language. There's no period after all the phrases, it just keeps going. You know people that talk that way, don't you? That they only take a breath and that's, you know. Otherwise, it's um, I'm related to one of them. Um, 
Okay, Dale. <laughs> this commentator describes it as one long sentence in its original language in which each successive thought crowds in on the one that precedes it. It's like as soon as Paul says one thing, he thinks of another and thinks of another, and they just keep crowding in. Its form is like a Jewish synagogue prayer known as the barakah, or blessing, a blessing for God's goodness. You can get a flavor of it in a Jewish grace prayer that is similar. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. Paul's words, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And now comes the litany of all those blessings. It's very much like Psalm 103 where he says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that's within me, bless God's holy name. And then proceeds to explain why with a whole narrative of Israel's history and story of God being there for God's people when they needed him. And unlike the pagan gods of this region, Paul's telling his readers, this God is not some divine force or some concept. This is the one God who made the world, who made himself known in the person of Jesus and through him has lavished on us his love. Thus, how we picture God, how we know God, is through Jesus. Now, as Americans, we are not oriented to kingdom language or kingdom thinking. But Paul's listeners were. They knew how a king represents his people, such that what happens to him happens to them. And what is true of him is true of them. So when Paul says we are in Christ, he is saying we are in God's king, the one God chose to be king. We are in him, and that means Jesus has won the decisive victory over the oldest and darkest enemy of us all. And if we are in him, we're about to discover what that means for us. And how that, more than anything, determines what we live for. That's worthy of a song. That's worthy of being told and retold over and over again. Because true worship of the one true God is always about telling and retelling with joy and amazement the narrative of what God has done throughout history, and what has culminated in Jesus Christ. And that's what this prayer does. Paul says we're part of the story of God's plan that is unfolding and reaches its crescendo and is summed up in Jesus. And he elaborates this message in three themes. It feels like there's like 13 or 14 themes, but there's three uniting themes that correspond with three of Israel's primary stories in its history. So I want to go through them, and they divide pretty evenly from verses 4 to 6, 7 to 10, and 11 to 14. In 4 to 6, we learn as God's people, we are chosen 
by grace. As God's people were chosen by grace. What it means to be chosen is not a matter of privilege or determinism. It's not why am I chosen and not someone else or does God choosing me then mean I have no choice myself? It's not about that at all. That's not where Paul puts the focus or emphasis or even questions. Instead, he says God's chosen us, which means he's invited us to be part of his larger cosmic purpose, that God's included us in the narrative. We've been chosen for the sake of what God wants to accomplish in and through us. And this relates back to the patriarchal story. Remember of God calling Abraham and says, I will bless you. There's that word again. I've chosen you and I'm going to bless you. And not as an end in itself. You're not the sole focus of my blessing. I'm going to bless you so that through you I can bless the world. I can restore what's broken. I can reclaim the world back to myself. All that's going to happen through you, he says to to Abraham. And now Paul says, that includes us. The same way God chose Abraham, he's choosing you and me to do the same thing. God chose Isaac and Jacob and the descendants that followed to be the bearers of his promised salvation for the world. And all of these stories point to what gets accomplished and fulfilled in Jesus. That's how God will provide this blessing and provide this means of salvation for the world. Because everything we have in Christ is a gift of God's doing, God's grace. So the very rescue that each of us need is from God. It's not something we could ever have provided for ourselves. And that leads to the second theme. As God's people, we have been ransomed, was the language in the text this morning. Rescued or redeemed or other words. And and we've been ransomed, rescued, redeemed from slavery. That immediately signals the story of, of the Exodus, which is exactly what happened to God's ancient people, Israel. And now in recounting what Jesus' death on the cross has accomplished, Paul uses this same imagery of Israel's Passover story. How blood from a sacrificed lamb was sprinkled on their doorpost to keep them safe from the angel of death. So our deliverance from sin and death, not the slavery of Egyptian taskmasters, but the slavery of sin, that compulsion we have to do things we wish we wouldn't have done, or to say things we wish we could take back, to undo the harm that we've caused the brokenness that we see exhibited in our lives and that of others. It's that deliverance, it's that ransom that God has won for us in Jesus from our enslavement to sin. Only in our case, this deliverance comes to us in the form of God's forgiveness and God's restoration. Have you ever gone back to a friend whom you've hurt long ago? And before you can even say the words, the friend says to you, it's good to see you. All is forgiven. And you go, but wait, I have prepared my speech. 
It's a good speech. And, and you can't provide forgiveness until I've, I've told you, I've got to earn this. No, that's not how it happens. Forgiveness is granted. It's a gift. And it changes everything about our relationship. And that's what Paul says God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And then he gets to the concluding section, verses 11 through 14. As God's people, we lived for a promised inheritance. As God's people, we've been chosen by grace. As God's people, we've been ransomed from slavery. And now, as God's people, we live for the future. Actually, the future that has become our reality here and now. It's not a future we wait for, but it's one that we're guaranteed. That we already have the um, um, insight and the experience of. Many preachers have taken heaven as the goal, the destination, or the reward of faith in Christ. As if life beyond the grave is God's promised gift of our inheritance. How many times as a child I would go to midweek services at our church to hear someone stand up and testify. And if you don't know what that is, then you're a Presbyterian. (laughs) Because when you're in a church where someone testifies, they pop up and they say, I just want to thank the Lord for helping me to keep on. Here it is since Sunday, Monday and Tuesday, and, and this day almost did me in, but I'm I'm here because I'm getting juiced up to make it through the rest of the week so that I know I can make it to the end and receive my reward in heaven. I'm living for that day. And it's hard down here, and it's hard to get through the week. So that's why I come here and I testify that God is good and faithful and He's going to see me through. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not the goal. That's not the goal. That's not what Paul says. And if you think that's what Paul says, you've been reading him wrong. Because listen to what he says. He speaks of a new world under God's rule where heaven and earth are united. Earth isn't done away with. It's not vacated. It's part of the narrative. Where, where all will be united in Christ and we as God's people will live the reality of the resurrection with everyone in the world. And then Paul says this, we, the people of God, serve as a sign to the world that this glorious future is coming. How are we doing? How are we doing as that sign Are people excited, wanting to flock to to experience that? No, it's very similar to what I said at the beginning. When you talk that way, it sort of changes the status quo. It alienates people. Whoa, you're a super spiritual religious person. What church do you go to? No, they don't say that. And then meanwhile, Paul says, our sign that this future is going to happen is a reality is that God's given us a gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is the power and the personal presence of God, the living God at work in our lives. This, again, relates to 
a, a story of the ancient Israelites. Remember when God led them and guided them to the promised land. The land God was giving them. But in the meantime, they were in the wilderness wandering. But God was present with them in the wilderness. And so the Spirit marks us out as God's new people and stamps on us the seal of God's guaranteed promise that we will inherit this world. Not heaven, this world made new. And these three themes of this prayer also have a broader connection with all three members of the Trinity. The opening uh, theme is the work of God the Father, emphasizing that God's taken the initiative to reclaim us for himself. God works. God is present in history. Then the second section, the theme of God the Son, is the means by which God has done what is necessary. And it cost him his own life to buy us back from sin. And finally, the third section, God the Spirit is given as a foretaste of the whole renewed cosmos which awaits us as our inheritance. Let me see if I can bring this into focus by telling a story. One of my favorite novels has a line in the middle of the story that sums up the main character's past and sets his destiny for the future. Amir, with his father, escaped from Afghanistan before it fell to the rule of the Taliban, as told in the story The Kite Runner. In a phone call with a family friend, he's compelled to return there to fulfill a personal mission that's tied up with his family's history and a lot of family secrets. I'll never forget attending a, a, um, an author event where Khaled Hosseini was talking about this book and how he had lived with these characters for years and then once he wrote them all down and shared it with us, the readers, that we just read them and after the book's over, we forget them and move on. And the audience groaned and reacted so strongly that the interviewer said, apparently that's not true. Here's what Amir writes in the middle of this book. I thought about a comment Rahim Khan had made just before we hung up, made it in passing almost as an afterthought. I closed my eyes and saw him at the other end of the scratchy long-distance line, saw him with his lips slightly parted and held, head tilted to one side. And again, something in his, in his bottomless black eyes hinted at an unspoken secret between us. Except now I knew, he knew. My suspicions had been right all those years. He knew about Hassan, about Asef, the kite, the money, the watch with the lightning bolt hands. He had always known. And now comes this line that I'll never forget. Come, 
there is a way to be good again. Come, there's a way to be good again. And what that means for Amir is not that he personally is going to accomplish that goodness or he's going to create the reconciliation he needs in his own life and his own heart, that he's going to right all the wrongs that he's participated in. But it's an invitation to, to live for something, to have your focus be about something, your life count for something. Because like Amir, all of us need redemption. And so many of us are trying to earn it for ourselves. But when we receive it as God's gift, that's what Paul is saying. We need to know there's a way for us to be good again. And Paul says, that way has been provided. To live for the right reasons, to make our lives count to live like we belong to God and we belong to one another. And Paul is saying through this hymn-like prayer that God's made that way possible. So come, fully participate in it. Give yourself to it. Live for it. Because as Paul says elsewhere, the result is we no longer live for ourselves, but for the one who gave himself for us to make us whole and holy, to free us from sin and to make us alive to God and all that's good. Then we will serve him in this world, knowing God has empowered us with his own presence through the Holy Spirit. And the life we live will startle the world because we live for something that has been promised to us and the reality has been made known to us in the resurrection of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. Praise indeed to God. Amen.